History This Week, August 4th, 1987. I'm Sally Helm. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This meeting of the Federal Communications Commission will come to order. The commissioners of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, are sitting at a curved table in front of a greenish wall. They're in a hearing room in Washington, D.C. They have papers spread in front of them. Two of them are wearing big round eyeglasses. The FCC regulates communication, including stuff like radio and TV. And today, they're speaking to a packed house. People are actually standing up against the walls, listening. First of all, let me note that there is overflow capacity in room 315. Good morning, uh, commissioners. Uh, Do we have any uh, announcements this morning? They go through a few items of business, say goodbye to a summer intern who's heading back to law school, and then they get to the main event. Testimony about a long-standing rule, one that goes back to the earliest days of TV. It's called the Fairness Doctrine. The Fairness Doctrine regulated broadcasters. It said they have to give airtime to issues of public importance. And they also had to present contrasting viewpoints. They couldn't just tell one side. It's pretty easy to imagine the thinking behind this. It's in the name. Fairness. Early regulators in the late 1940s thought, let's make sure these newfangled broadcasters are being fair and responsible. At this point in 1987, there is broad support for the Fairness Doctrine in Congress, among both Democrats and Republicans. But the regulation has also gotten a lot of criticism, including from broadcasters themselves. Some people argue that it's not doing what it was meant to do, and even that it's unconstitutional, a violation of the First Amendment. That day in August, the FCC hears testimony on the Fairness Doctrine. The so-called Fairness Doctrine is a misnomer. Although its goal is to achieve fairness, it has in fact resulted in blandness and nothingness by chilling the very speech it was designed to foster. We're laying to rest that the Fairness Doctrine promotes diversity of viewpoint. It does not. Some claim that the so-called Fairness Doctrine is needed to prevent broadcasters from abusing their freedom and slanting their coverage. Of course, the First Amendment does not guarantee a fair press, only a free press. At the end of the hearing, the commissioners take a vote. And it's unanimous. Two Republicans and two Democrats agree to abolish the Fairness Doctrine. Today, what was the Fairness Doctrine supposed to do? What did it actually end up doing? And how did getting rid of it shape the news environment we live in today? For History When You Want It, sign up for an extended 30-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 documentaries and series from the History Channel, commercial-free, on your favorite device. Plus, new videos are added to History Vault every week. Sign up now and explore the greatest stories in history, from ancient civilizations to American history, modern warfare, and more. To start your extended 30-day free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. The Fairness Doctrine no longer exists, and it probably wouldn't have applied to podcasts anyway. So if we wanted to, we could have just talked to one person with one perspective on this history, 
But we didn't. We talked to two. One of them you've already heard from. This meeting of the Federal Communications Commission will come to order. I remember that morning quite clearly. I can remember walking down the hall with the order in my hand. Dennis Patrick was chairman of the FCC when they voted to abolish the Fairness Doctrine. He felt strongly that it was the right thing to do. I was very convinced that the doctrine was unconstitutional, and I was very resolute. We also spoke with a man named Tom Cohen. He was on the opposite side of this fight in the late 80s, working as a lawyer advising the Senate. The Democrats had just taken over Congress. We used to be in the minority, now we're the majority. And it's clear the Republican FCC was on course with Chairman Dennis Patrick then to repeal the Fairness Doctrine. So we quickly focus on this issue to move it through. Cohen actually helped draft a bill that would have preserved the Fairness Doctrine in law. Though his personal feelings on it are a little complicated. He says there are probably better ways to work towards that goal of fairness, like making sure there's enough competition in the market. The U.S. government has been thinking about how to approach this question of fairness since the very beginning of broadcasting. The first TV broadcasts in America are in the early 1940s. And the first news programs start up almost immediately. This is an NBC News broadcast from March of 1949, one of the oldest NBC News recordings that exists. Then a new department, the sports section. And finally, if we don't run fresh out of time, which quite likely we may, we'll have a piece on trade across the Iron Curtain in Europe. In 1949, there were just four major broadcasting networks. CBS, NBC, ABC, and Dumont. Because the FCC had basically decided, we are only going to hand out a certain number of these broadcast licenses to both TV and radio stations. The government was controlling supply. And in effect, it created an artificial scarcity in broadcasting. And it came to be believed and understood that certain responsibilities attached to the privilege of uh, utilizing what were thought to be public airwaves. And in 1949, some of those responsibilities get written down in this FCC regulation, the Fairness Doctrine. It has two big parts. One, it required that broadcasters cover controversial issues of public importance in their broadcast communities. Radio and TV broadcasters had to cover issues that mattered to their audiences. The broadcaster was also required to cover contrasting viewpoints with respect to that issue. Dennis Patrick has big problems with the Fairness Doctrine, which we'll get to. But he says the ideas that it put forward were just some of the basic principles of journalism. You try to cover issues of importance to your community, and you try to give some access to those who have contrasting viewpoints. Most broadcasters would agree it's, it's a good idea, but having the federal government enforce that idea introduces other issues. One of those issues has to do with the First Amendment free speech. Dennis Patrick told us, 
if anyone in the federal apparatus suggested that the New York Times had to cover controversial issues of public importance as defined by some federal agency and they had to cover both sides, it would immediately be thrown out as, as unconstitutional, completely inconceivable that that would be tolerable. The government can't tell newspapers what to say or how to say it. But they had decided that TV and radio broadcasters were different. After all, newspapers are private companies. They don't need permission from the government to print their pages. But with broadcasters, the government was handing out these licenses to use the public airwaves. So they said, we have a right to regulate you. But in 1969, 20 years after the Fairness Doctrine went into effect, it faced a serious First Amendment challenge. Number two, Red Lion Broadcasting Company, Incorporated, et al. Petitioners versus Federal Communications Commission, et al. In the so-called Red Lion case, a radio station in Pennsylvania had broadcast a five-minute piece by the Reverend Billy James Hargis of the Christian Crusade. In it, he attacked a liberal writer named Fred Cook. Under the Fairness Doctrine, Cook was entitled to a response and he demanded airtime. The radio station said, yeah, you can make your case on the air. You just have to pay us $5. Cook refused and filed a complaint, and eventually the case landed at the Supreme Court. The lawyers for the broadcasters said, the fairness doctrine violates the First Amendment. We should have control over what goes on the air. But the government's lawyers said, look, these are public airwaves. We have a right to make sure broadcasters use them responsibly. Here's the Solicitor General at the time, Erwin Griswold. The broadcaster must serve the public interest if he is to have and retain a license. Let us suppose, for example, a station which obtains a license and simply does not operate. Surely its license will be revoked. Does that violate the First Amendment? He said part of the whole idea of the First Amendment is that all viewpoints should have a chance to be heard. I suggest that on analysis, it is the government and the Federal Communications Commission which are the real champions of the First Amendment here. The Supreme Court wrestles with this. But in the end, they decide unanimously to uphold the Fairness Doctrine. Basically, they argue that hearing opposing viewpoints is important and that if the government is giving out a certain number of broadcasting licenses, they can regulate how they're used. It's an argument about scarcity. Dennis Patrick explains. Because of the so-called scarcity of the broadcast waves, they found that it was tolerable to impose this obligation on broadcasters, but dropped a very significant footnote in that decision in which they said, If, however, it is ever shown that the net effect of the existence of the doctrine is to discourage the coverage of controversial issues, to quote-unquote chill speech, then we would have to look at the doctrine again. The Supreme Court leaves this opening. If the fairness doctrine is ever shown to curtail speech, then it has to go. But in the meantime, it's been upheld as constitutional. And so... If someone thinks a broadcaster has violated the Fairness Doctrine, they can complain to the FCC. Dennis Patrick was a commissioner of the FCC for several years in the 80s before he became chairman. And he said 
he had to help figure out these fairness doctrine complaints. You know, whether or not the broadcaster was covering issues of importance to the community in the right way and providing access for contrasting viewpoints in any given community, in Cleveland, in, in Los Angeles, in a small community in the South. He said he'd read local newspapers, try and figure out what all sides of the issue were, but it was tough. You know, what are the issues of, of importance to that community is, I submit, a question that cannot be resolved by a bunch of people sitting in, in Washington, D.C. Patrick was serving in the FCC under the Reagan administration. Reagan was opposed to the Fairness Doctrine and to government regulation in general. The Reagan administration was generally quite deregulatory in its approach. So I would say that almost any regulation on the books of any of the uh, independent regulatory agencies were examined with a critical eye. In 1985, the FCC orders an internal review of the Fairness Doctrine. They ask broadcasters to weigh in. And Patrick told us the response was overwhelming. They gave us specific examples, chapter and verse, of issues that they had chosen to not cover for fear of being sued for a Fairness Doctrine violation. Remember, part one of the Fairness Doctrine was about covering important issues. But broadcasters were more likely to get a complaint about part two, covering all points of view. The penalties were typically fines, but in theory, one could lose one's license, which, of course, to that broadcaster is worth millions of dollars. So imagine if you're a broadcaster and you have a choice of covering a relatively uncontroversial issue, like whether or not, you know, the park in downtown ought to be expanded versus the pro-choice, pro-life debate. You're going to choose to cover the park every time. So broadcasters came in and they told us very candidly the existence of the doctrine and the fact that the doctrine has this nuanced aspect to it of covering not just the right issues, but covering them in the right way in terms of access for different perspectives is such that we simply avoid them like the plague. The FCC thinks this sounds a lot like that chilling effect the Supreme Court talked about in Red Lion. And in 1985 they issue their report. The report found the net effect of the fairness doctrine was to reduce and not to increase the coverage of controversial issues of public importance. It had the opposite effect than that which was intended. The report went on to say that it was probably unconstitutional, but because this is a very controversial issue, we will continue to defer to the Congress. Remember, the Fairness Doctrine is a regulation, not a law. So if Congress wanted to make a law about it one way or the other, they could. And the FCC leaves it up to them. But now, the agency is in this weird position of enforcing a doctrine that they themselves have said is probably unconstitutional. They're still hearing complaints and making decisions. And pretty soon, someone takes them to court. A TV station in Syracuse, New York, owned by the Meredith Broadcasting Corporation, had shown commercials that encouraged the public to approve the construction of a nuclear power plant. An anti-nuclear group called the Syracuse Peace Council filed a complaint saying the station had failed to broadcast the opposing view. The FCC agreed. 
this violated the Fairness Doctrine. The broadcasters think this restriction on us is unconstitutional, and they ask the court to weigh in. It went to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, probably the second most prestigious court in the land. The court essentially said, okay, we're not going to decide whether the Fairness Doctrine should continue. That's on the FCC. But FCC, you have to make a decision. Probably the strongest rebuke that I have ever read of a federal agency. They said, and I'm paraphrasing, we know of no doctrine of law by which a federal agency can avoid reviewing one of its own rules just because it is politically awkward. It was going to get politically awkward. And very soon after this court decision, Dennis Patrick takes over as FCC chairman, replacing a man named Mark Fowler. Day one, I walked in, I sat down at Mark's desk, now my desk, and on the desk was a remand from the D.C. Circuit of this matter involving the Meredith Corporation. You have to address the issue. Hey, sleepyhead. Why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. The same year that the Meredith case happens, 1987, the Democrats have taken control of Congress. Many of them support the Fairness Doctrine. They're watching the FCC, and it becomes clear to them that if they want to keep the doctrine, they have to act quickly. We knew where they were headed, and so this becomes a priority as the Democrats take over. Tom Cohen is, at this time, the senior counsel for the Senate Commerce Committee. It's led by a South Carolina senator, the Democrat Fritz Hollings. Cohen told us Hollings was determined to hold broadcasters to the Fairness Doctrine. After all, they had agreed to these rules when they accepted their license. They have obligations. That's what they signed on to. And we need to make sure, you know, we don't let them get too powerful in terms of what they do. Cohen helps write a bill that would turn the Fairness Doctrine into law. Senator Hollings introduces it. Here he is speaking at a hearing in 1987. The Fairness Doctrine has been the government policy for lo these many years. I think this doctrine has brought about in its requirement for balance a credibility within the broadcast media and the print media as well that hadn't infringed on anybody's right. It is a limited spectrum out there. The committee hears testimony. Some of it is about that chilling effect that the FCC described in their report. But there's also testimony about why the Fairness Doctrine is good, common-sense policy. For example, the president of the Westinghouse Broadcasting Television Group says that his company hasn't encountered that chilling effect, and that he thinks the Fairness Doctrine is important. Given the degree to which the public relies on the broadcast media for essential news and information, the relatively straightforward responsibility to seek out and fairly ventilate important public issues is essential to our democratic society. Dennis Patrick told us this bill had support on both sides of the aisle. 
Now, why is that? How can liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans both agree that it is appropriate to maintain the fairness doctrine? He says many on the left basically agreed with the scarcity argument that the Supreme Court had upheld in Red Lion. Broadcasting is a public trust, the government issues these licenses, and should be able to regulate them. On the other side... What I found in talking to more conservative members of Congress was that they were, in my opinion, surprisingly, supportive of the Fairness Doctrine because the Fairness Doctrine was a tool that could be used to attempt to influence the coverage of issues within the media, which media those conservative members uh, felt was by and large very liberal. So uh, you have this very odd and I think historically quite interesting phenomenon in which you had both the left and the right supporting the fairness doctrine for two very different reasons. The bill has enough support to pass the Senate. But remember, President Reagan is in the White House and he's opposed to the fairness doctrine. He could veto the bill. So the Senate needs not just a majority, but a two-thirds majority to make the bill veto-proof. In the end, they get 59 votes. Pretty good, but not good enough. The bill goes on to the House, where it passes. Then it goes to the president. And he vetoes it. This fairness doctrine legislation has failed. Legislation Tom Cohen helped to write. It wasn't unexpected. Disappointed, but not unexpected. Congress has failed to put the Fairness Doctrine into law. That leaves the future of the doctrine in the hands of the FCC. They hold their hearing to abolish the doctrine on August 4th, 1987. I remember walking down the hall to the commission meeting room and one of my assistants said, in effect, are you sure you really want to do this? The political fallout was going to be intense, but... My view was, if the Congress felt so strongly about this, they could codify it and muster the votes to override the veto. And if they couldn't, I have to do what I believe is right. Here's Patrick on that day. The Founding Fathers placed their faith in freedom. They understood that fairness and balance and truth were concepts too subjective and too important to be defined by government. They therefore crafted a First Amendment which protected the people and their press against government interference. They placed their faith in the people upon the assumption that free men and women would be able to distinguish truth from falsehood, the authentic from the fraudulent, the statesman from the charlatan. All those in favor of this item say aye. 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 All those opposed, nay. The ayes have it. So ordered. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Is that the end? That's it. The vote is unanimous. The fairness doctrine is no more. Patrick faces blowback for this decision. One congressman comes out strongly against him. He called me a lick spittle, which I had to look up. A lick spittle is an old-fashioned phrase that means generally a toady. And I'm assuming he was suggesting or implying that I was taking orders from somewhere else. I had taken my orders from the White House. I am here to tell you and your listeners, I did not. We exercised 
what we believed was required by the Constitution of the United States based upon a record that we had independently put together. There are some attempts to revive the Fairness Doctrine, but they don't really go anywhere. And in the 90s and 2000s, the news environment kind of explodes. There's a ton of new partisan talk radio. More and more cable networks pop up. And by the way, to be clear, the Fairness Doctrine as it was written would not have applied to cable, like Fox News or MSNBC. And of course, the internet eventually makes for many, many more news sources. So there's really no more scarcity. Now, some people love it, some people hate it, but you cannot argue that there isn't a lot more in the way of public policy uh, commentary, left, right, and middle, in cable today. And I would argue as a result of the fact that we created this freedom within the broadcasting community that then morphed into the cable universe. So there's more commentary and more news. And Tom Cohen told us he actually thinks that's good in the end. Beginning on cable in the 90s, and this then leads into the internet and broadband service opening up. It's a matter of let's give people choice. They, the consumer, the public, individually then will decide what they want. The way he thinks about it, increasing supply in the broadcasting world helps do what the Fairness Doctrine was meant to do, give people access to lots of viewpoints. But the media environment today is also way more divided. I asked Patrick about this. To those who would say that, you know, this has led to polarization, I am going to admit to you that I do think that uh, the, the abolition of the Fairness Doctrine has certainly resulted in lots of voices being able to express their view and not pay a lot of attention to a view that they don't uh, agree with. That, in a sense, is polarizing the debate. But as long as there are enough outlets so that one can get a, a, a diverse range of perspective, I think we're better off. We are not polarized because broadcasting is free. It's not creating that polarization. We are polarized in this country because we are polarized. Patrick's view is that broadcasting just expresses that polarization. It doesn't create it. Freedom is messy. If you allow journalists to be free, you're not always going to like what they say but that is in the nature of free public discourse. He thinks that freedom will ultimately lead to the best results. But some people disagree. An unregulated free-for-all of news and information can be overwhelming. Some say it's even dangerous. And so there have been calls for a new fairness doctrine for the internet age. Democrat Tulsi Gabbard introduced a bill in 2019 that would have made the fairness doctrine a law, Democrat Ro Khanna recently said that we need a, quote, fairness doctrine for the 21st century. He basically argued that if there's a false claim about you circulating on Twitter, you should be able to respond. And Republicans, including President Trump, have repeatedly said that social media is unfair to conservatives and that maybe the government should do something about that. Some of their calls come close to sounding like a new fairness doctrine. On the internet, All of those views can find a platform. In fact, if you look, 
you can find any number of takes on the fairness doctrine. It's good. It's evil. We should bring it back. We never should have had it in the first place. They're all there. Just not necessarily side by side in the same broadcast. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our editor and sound designer is Chris Boniello. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. 